Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Today, our guest is Judah Moore. He's a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development and the former Minister of Public Works in Liberia. Hi, welcome to the show, Judah. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. So to start, you come from Liberia, and Liberia has a relatively unique history that I'm not sure all of our listeners would be familiar with. So can you go into that history and sort of how it's shaped the national character of Liberia today? Sure, quickly. By 1820s, there were over 200,000 free slaves in the American South. And there had been a bunch of slave rebellions. And so slave owners felt like the best way to be able to keep those down was to be able to get rid of the freed slaves. If they were not around, then those who were still enslaved would not be tempted to run away. And then abolitionists, there were a bunch of abolitionists who also felt like black people would never be accepted in the U.S. And so abolitionists and slave owners came together and created something called the American Colonization Society, to look for space in Africa to send free slaves back home. And the place they found was called Liberia. Cool. And what influence has that had on sort of Liberian culture? Is Liberian culture, does that feel distinct from sort of nearby African countries in a way because of that unique history? It is, just in terms of houses that were built, the architecture, plantation style, um, antebellum houses, the accent, the way people speak English in Liberia reminds, I mean, people who've been in the Deep South come to Liberia and there are things in Liberia that remind them of the Deep South. So there's that. But also the entire civic culture of the country and the flag looks like the U.S. flag. One star, but star and stripes, constitution, structure of government, everything. It's very different from, say, other countries that were colonized by Europeans or that developed uh, independently. Okay. And you grew up in Liberia during the Civil War. So what was that like? Well, I mean... I think uh, we're beginning to see a little bit of it now here in D.C. With the, <laughs> with the coronavirus outbreak and people staying and sheltering in place. I mean, in a lot of ways, it wasn't as if there was fighting all the time, except in a few places. But there was some fighting and territory was repeatedly changing hands between different rebel groups because there were different rebel groups. And lots of deaths. A lot of the deaths were, again, not from bullets. They were from people dying of starvation or people eating things that they shouldn't have eaten. Um, People lacking access to hospital and stuff like that. Sicknesses killing people, cholera and stuff like that. It was a horrid time. And hopefully nobody ever has to go through that again. Yeah, hopefully. And were you in Monrovia during the Civil War? No, I spent the last part, yeah, in Monrovia. But before then, I grew up in the South eastern part of Liberia, like the southeasternmost tip of Liberia. Like if you go any further, you go into Cote d'Ivoire. That's where I'm from. And it took a while for the war to actually get to us because we're that far from the capital. But eventually it did. So the war started in 89. And I think the rebels arrived toward the end of 90 or the beginning of 91. And so how did that, I mean, you you sort of compare that to the feeling here. I mean, so what I think of when you say that is like, there's this feeling here of first it's in China, oh, it's not going to get to us. And then it's like, oh, no, it's in Italy. And some people are screaming their heads off and everybody else is like, oh, you're overreacting. 
calm down. This is America. And then eventually it's like, okay, now you're supposed to be social distancing. Now you can't go see your grandparents because you might give them the sickness. Was it like a similar feeling? It was. It was. So basically, if you think about it, like I was in Connecticut, there's fighting in Connecticut. And then after a couple of days, it's like the fighting's reached New York City now. Then there's New Jersey, it's Trenton. Then, oh man, it's in Wilmington. And then, of course, it's Baltimore. And then before you know it, it's in Washington, D.C. So it was like that. And that's why it took a while because we have very aggressive rainy season. And so during the rainy season, movement is not as heavy. But it was during the rainy season that the rebels attacked because it meant the government troops, the infantry soldiers require heavy equipment to move around when the rebels are really light. So sort of like uh, the coronavirus, they were <laughs> pretty light and can move fast. <laughs> and then states respond slowly and states are more lethargic in terms of the response. They were like, kind of like the government army. But ultimately, a couple of things happened that are really important for the Charter City conversation. First, the West African organization, the regionalist organization called ECOWAS, Economic Community of West African States, for the first time created a military force to move into Liberia to stabilize things. It was called ECOMOG. And ECOMOG took over the capital, Monrovia, and so Monrovia became a safe haven. And so everybody outside the capital who could find a way into the capital did, because once you got to the capital, you were safe. And because of that, a city that was built for at most 350 to 400,000 people surged to about 800,000. Now it's close to a third of the country's population is there. And so the infrastructure that was built to accommodate 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 people now has to accommodate a third of the infrastructure of the country, population of the country, I'm sorry. What was the administrative structure? So ECOWAS came in and then did the government invite them in and say, hey, we can't handle this. We're going to go fight the war. You govern the city. Or was it like, you're screwing this up. We're going to come in and govern the city. And the government didn't have enough power to respond. By this point, the rebels have taken over half of the country. They had taken over more of the country than the government controlled. So the government basically controlled the capital. And it was only a matter of time because the rebels began amassing on the outskirts of the capital to be able to make an assault on the capital. And they did. And so then the government reached out, the existing government reached out to the West African states and the West African states met and said, listen, we can't allow this to happen. And so they moved in and pushed. In fact, there was a Nigerian general who was giving charge. He was replacing a Ghanaian general. And the Nigerian general, while he was still in Nigeria, ordered the troops in, the Ekomok troops, that by the time I get to Monrovia, I won the rebels 30 miles outside the city, right? And so there was significant amount of fighting then, but they pushed them back. And so then the sitting government basically controlled the capital and the rebels controlled the rest of the country. <laughs> that's a fun situation. That's interesting because that's somewhat analogous to what happened in Hong Kong after the Second World War. Hong Kong, the Japanese occupied it and they got kicked out. When they got kicked out, the population was about 600,000. Before the war, it was a little over a million. And then quickly in about six years from 1945 to 51, the population grew from 600,000 to 2.1 million, which was a combination of two things. It was one, the basically former refugees who had fled returning, and then two was refugees from the Chinese Civil War who fled largely from Shanghai, China's commercial capital, which is in part how Hong Kong got their sort of start in textile manufacturing. One of the really interesting things about this history is you can read sort of accounts and there isn't a lot of civil strife. Usually you think if you have like a population that goes up from 
600,000 to 2.1 million, it goes up by greater than a factor of three in a time of six years. You'd expect a degree of civil unrest because how do you deal with all these newcomers that can the infrastructure handle it, right? There's a lot of changes going on. And from what I can tell, there just isn't that much of a history of that. So how did Monrovia deal with that? Was there civil unrest? Was there the fact the provision of some infrastructure or was it just kind of you're not getting killed by rebels, so every man for himself? Well, there wasn't much civil unrest. A couple of things happened. One is people move into the city. They moved into abandoned buildings. They moved into land that was unused and built a makeshift structure. And initially, there wasn't a lot of problem because most of the people who people had also fled. I mean, the abandoned buildings, the people who owned those buildings were no longer around. And those people trickled back in. And when they did, the courts worked. And so people could evict IDPs, because it were called you know, internally displaced persons, from their property. Second thing also was that aid organizations, NGOs in the country, provided services to people who made it to Monrovia to be able to do that. And so eventually what happened, though, is that as landowners and property owners returned, people began to spill out into places where houses and living structures should not have been built. So people started to build in wetlands. People began to build in places, in swamps and on public lands. So lands that were not owned by private citizens, but the state hadn't done anything with and people moved there. There was an island called Peace Island. And Peace Island supposedly was owned by a number of families but I don't know if those families are ever going to regain the, the island because Peace Island now is completely taken over by people who came into the capital. And so how did you get to the U.S.? Finished high school in refugee camp in Cote d'Ivoire. While I was there, I was visiting friends. I was in 11th grade and saw a brochure from a college in Kentucky called Berea College that provided full tuition scholarship to all of its students and took in about 25 to 30 international students a year. But I was in 11th grade, so I didn't apply. And then after high school, I returned to Monrovia because there was an election in 97. And Charles Taylor, the biggest rebel leader, had won the election. So the country has settled down a bit. But again, everybody came to Monrovia because that's where there was economic activity. And so I went to Monrovia and started going to theology school because I thought I would be a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Where I stayed, the older brother in that family is the family friends that I had known back home. And he was cleaning his room and had, there was an insert, like magazine subscription insert, but it was from Brea College. And I was like, oh, I remember this college. So I went online and the rest is history. You told me a funny story once about how you, when you, I think you flew into the Baltimore airport. Yeah, yeah. It was Ghana Airways then. That's before they became bankrupt. And it was a one-way ticket. And they flew into Baltimore. I think they also flew into JFK. But I came into Baltimore, got off the plane. And my sister's in New York, Staten Island. And I came out in Baltimore and knew nobody. Nobody knew me. There was no one there waiting for me. It was basically... And so your plan was to get off the plane and go say hi to your sister in Staten Island. Basically. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 to be honest, up to today, I, I try to figure out how I ended. I think what happened was my Ghana Airways flight got delayed and postponed. And they went to New York on certain days and went to Baltimore on certain days. And so then I just got on because you just wanted to get out. I got on the flight. I was coming to Baltimore and not the one I was going to New York. And so my sister was in New York waiting for me and I was in Baltimore. But some serial unions at the airport, they had come to pick someone else up and I was dressed 
like someone who had just come from Africa anyway. <laughs> so, so they saw me and, and, and I looked lost <laughs> in my African fabric and I was wearing dress shoes and dress pants. <laughs> and then the guy took me into the house. It was the summer they were having. It was a big barbecue. Life was good. I had written down my sister's number. He called her and said, listen, He's in Baltimore. <laughs> I think I have somebody of yours. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to put him on a bus, on a Greyhound bus, and he's going to come to you. And so put me on the bus. But it was pretty incredible because he took the bus and you come through. I, I don't remember which one it is. I think it's the Holland Tunnel or the Lincoln Tunnel. You come out of New Jersey. You come through the tunnel and you turn on to 34th. You know, it's uh, Penn Station and the lights. And they're like, Yes! This is America. (laughs) (laughs) And then I took a taxi from the city to Staten Island. And yeah. Cool. And so then after you're in the U.S., you do your undergrad, you get your master's degree from Georgetown. Then you decide, I'm going to go back to Liberia. I didn't want to go back to Liberia. (laughs) But you did. (laughs) Yeah. And so I, I went back to I went back to Liberia. It ended up being the best career decision I could have made. Well, a couple of things happened, though. I, th- I think when I first left Liberia, because of the war, because of the difficulty, the intention was not to go back. I was going to immerse myself as much as possible here, and this is going to be home. But the longer I stayed here, the stronger the pull to return home. I, I think this has happened to a lot of people, that there's something about home that keeps... And so there was a program after the war, and President Sirleaf, uh, the government, Liberia beat the United States and elected the first female president. And she needed help because the supervisory class, bureaucratic class, the country had either died or fled the war. And so they had a program from my current employer. I helped design the program, the Center for Global Development, and it was called the Scott Fellows Program. And Scott, Ed Scott is the guy who put up the money to create the Center for Global Development. He put up the first amount of money to be able to recruit Liberians and non-Liberians who would go back and be assigned with head of agencies as sort of a special assistant to help them in do memos, do meetings, do whatever was required. And I was recruited into that program. I went back and I was fortunate and I was placed in the what was called the Ministry of State for Presidential Affairs. That's just the office of the president and that's what it's called. So I started off as an aide and they would just bring like piles of reports to me to summarize. I don't even know if the president read those. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask but, her. <laughs> <laughs> but started off as an aide and, and just worked my way up through the process, uh, became deputy chief of staff and head of the president's delivery unit. The president's delivery unit was this, the president's SWAT team. If there's a problem, we'll figure it out. You fix it. So it did two things. One was it removed bottlenecks from priority projects for the country, but it also drove delivery. And we briefed the president and vice president every two weeks which meant the president had a really good grasp on what was happening in the country. And if there were an agency, a government ministry that wasn't working well, a project that wasn't going forward, the head of that agency got invited to the briefing. (laughs) (laughs) And you got to explain with them sitting there, you're what, like five years out of college? So you're sitting there like telling the president, hey, hey, this ministry doesn't have their stuff together. This is like three years out of graduate school. No, and the thing was, Initially, when I think it took a while for people to realize why they were getting invited, because when they got invited to it, it felt like a prestigious thing. Because you got invited to a briefing, you got invited to a briefing with the president and vice president, and then you realize after we did the report. (laughs) (laughs) But it was pretty awesome because people hated us, obviously. And when I became minister, I hated them. And because the head of the PDU 
was a deputy, was the rank is at a deputy minister, and you're calling ministers. And so ministers bristled that... It's not the hierarchy. Exactly. You're beneath them in the hierarchy, and you're kind of young too. But you don't care because they can't fire you. You work for the president. And they have to answer your call because they don't know if you're calling on behalf of the president or calling on behalf of yourself. I remember the health minister, Dr. Gunengali, very challenging. He's a very, very hard worker, but he's very, very straightforward. I'm sure some people would describe him as cantankerous. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember him once telling the president that these little boys came to his office, you know. But that was our job. And it was pretty cool because, in fact, when I was first offered the position to become minister, I declined. I said, this is too much fun. <laughs> I kind of like working. You know? <laughs> I get to tell the ministers what to do here. <laughs> exactly. I, I, by then, I didn't know all the perks that came with the minister. I guess, also. So that's, I was um, in the PDU and then became head of the PDU, which meant I traveled with the president everywhere. And you're the president's record book. You're the president's brain. You remember everything. You do everything. And then and the way it worked also, when people came in to see the president about anything, after the meeting with the president, they will not see the president again. They'll see you. And so I'm just kind of giving that up to be minister. (laughs) (laughs) Hard choices. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I always said that being minister was an easier job because you were just responsible for one sector. Yeah. Whereas in the the president's office, it was the entire country. And so that's where I was when we responded to Ebola. The Scott Fellows thing you brought up, I think, is really interesting because this is actually a problem that we've been thinking a little bit more seriously about recently. So we're working with a new city development called the Nyimba Economic City. It's being built in Nigeria for 1.5 million residents. And so we were thinking, okay, 1.5 million people. So if you assume 5% is working for the city, that's 7,500 people. And 10% of them need to be like high skilled, that's 750 people. So where do they come from? You don't really want to hire them out of the Nigerian bureaucracy because the Nigerian bureaucracy is not effective and you don't want to bring those sort of ineffective cultural norms. You can probably take a small percentage of people from American, European, Chinese universities, whatever. But my guess is that's relatively hard because most people who are abroad probably want to stay abroad because the standard of living is relatively high. And so we've been thinking about what it actually means to effectively develop those training programs. Well, it's not necessarily true. I mean, currently, I would say the standard of living in Nigeria is significantly higher than it was in Liberia right after the war. And a whole bunch of people went. And the success of the Scottfellow program was that everybody stayed after they finished. So some of us, for example, at the end of your two years, the government, if the government wanted to keep you, they'll make you an offer. And the government's offer was... Lower. You, well, you got paid 43% of what you were paid before. <laughs> right? But people stayed. And so the way it works, there are a ton of people in the diaspora who want to go home, who want to go and make a contribution of some sort. But if they were simply to return home today without any structure, within a few months, they would get discouraged. And if they could, they would return. The reason the Scott Fellow Program worked was because it was a managed transition. You came into the country in a program for two years where you got paid regularly for two years. And because it was structured... You could set up your social network. You could feel that you were adding value. Within two years. And the thing is, not everybody accepted a 57% pay cut. But people then moved on to other things. Other people started their own businesses and stuff like that. And so I think that's the best way to be able to do it. I think a lot of diaspora programs have failed because it lacked structure. And you can't have a kid out of graduate school with loans with student loans, without savings, just show up in an African country without any structure. Some of these kids 
came here when they were five years old. Some of them were born here to immigrant parents who still feel connected to the home country and want to. And so they have very little real connections or social networks and to just take them and dump them back in this country is sort of really, really difficult. And that's what the Scott Fellow Program did really well. There was an office in country that was also responsible for them. So by the time you came, they had worked out housing for you. It was a very, very easy transition and, and it worked really well for us. And this program ended up producing me, you know, it produced a commercial court judge, one of the vice presidents now at the university, a bunch of deputy ministers, and it actually helped increase the quality and skill level in the government because the program was structured so well. And the hope is at some point there will be some sort of support to be able to do this on a larger scale. Yeah, that's helpful. And I'll probably follow up with you afterwards for more information because we're thinking about that. If you look at, for example, Shenzhen, a lot of Shenzhen's success, it wasn't a structured program, but for the first 17 years from 1980 to 1997, 80% of the investment in the Guangdong province where Shenzhen is came from Hong Kong because there were all of these family ties because families were split East and West Germany. And then some people were like sneaking across the border to work for a few months and then sneaking back. And so those like, I don't know, personal relationships are really important, which is one of the things that we're thinking about. How do you sort of establish those for charter cities? Because it's not just you look at a spreadsheet and then you invest, like, you know, a guy or like a guy's cousin or brother or whatever that fosters those relationships. So you go back to, to Liberia, you, you first sort of cut your teeth as the do everything. And this brings up I guess, two interesting questions. It's one, how do you have that level of entrepreneurship in a government? Governments are, tend not to be known for being entrepreneurial. So how do you sort of bring that problem-solving enthusiasm? And then second is in the, not immediate post-war, but like medium post-war era of Liberia. So you're kind of somewhat analogous to a charter city, like building a new governing structure somewhat from scratch. So how did you tackle these problems of creating this new governing structure and then doing it with this like entrepreneurial problem solving approach? So in a way, I sort of missed out on the initial years because she came to power in 2006 and I joined the team in 2009. So I end the first term and then go through the entire second term. But I think it was hard because there's very little resources to be able to do it, but it was easy because nothing was set. I mean, everything, it was basically starting from a sub-zero baseline. And so because of that, you could really, really ramp up in a way that you want to. And the second thing I would say was that even as minister, there was a clear mandate on what the ministry does. But there was a significant amount of room for the minister to be innovative. I didn't get, I mean, I don't think that happens anywhere where you get a list of here are the exact things you're supposed to do. And every day the president comes and checks on you to see if you're doing all of the exact things. You're supposed to build and maintain public infrastructure. That's what you do as the Minister of Public Works. How you do that is left to you, which allows you, it gives you a significant amount of wiggle room to be able to be creative in terms of being able to do that. I think the second thing is we were forced to be creative simply because there was rarely ever the amount of resources you needed to be able to. So for example, we had done the what it would take to connect all of the county capitals. Because instead of states, we have counties. And it was about $2.1 billion. So we calculated that for the next 20 years, we need to spend at least $100 million a year just building roads. But this isn't even, this doesn't take into account the maintenance of the existing one, just build up. So that's it. And then my budget, I always like to talk about this, like my budget, my last year in office was for all civil works, not including salary and stuff like that, was $16 million. 
So this is a country that needs $100 million every year. And this is just transport infrastructure, roads. And of the, I always like to test people, of the $60 million that was budgeted, I think it's how much I got before I left office. Can you guess? Of the $60 million that was budgeted, how much were you actually spending on How much did I actually get to spend? Yeah. Eight. Nah, man, I got 13000 13,000 yeah because the way it works you know so there's a budget but already accounted for so you basically so no 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 the budget is just a projection if the ministry of finance doesn't raise the money (laughs) if the ministry of finance doesn't (laughs) and so we so basically what we did with the 13,000 was we bought a uh, you paved like one square mile? <laughs> no, no, we didn't pave anything. We just got a lot of cement Yeah. in places where there were potholes. We cut the asphalt and just patched it with cement. I mean, that's what we did. So every night, my guys were out in the city. But this meant we could only work in the capital city. You got to remember, there's not enough to even do stuff in the capital city and to be able to do that. And so the significant, the huge infrastructure costs what are maintaining existing infrastructure or building new infrastructure and a government that is really really hard-pressed for resources to be able to do anything which is why i've always been interested in the idea of charter cities is how with governments so stressed cash strapped how can you give the private sector incentive to build up the kind of infrastructure that's needed yeah, I was going to ask you how you set your priorities as minister, but if you've got $13,000, the priority list has to be somewhat small. No, I mean, so you have the, <laughs> I think there are a couple of things here. $16 million was what's going to be available to me from the government budget. With that $16 million, I will be doing rural roads. I will be doing maintenance of existing infrastructure and maybe one or two kilometers. And I will also be paying existing projects, yeah, paying contractors. And all right. However... That wasn't all I had. We also had projects that were financed through loans from the African Development Bank, through loans from the World Bank. So those were ongoing. This is just annually what I'm doing to be able to add to that. So, and so because of that, I tried to be creative. So the first thing I did was I did a lot of research on ways to be able to do maintenance. So I ordered stuff from Hong Kong where it was basically asphalt in bags and it's cold. You just apply it and it works and we applied it, but we applied it too close to the rainy season. So that didn't work. And then we did, when I first told the engineers to use Portland cement to patch an asphalt, they refused. So after a while, I just told them, do it. If something goes wrong, you just be like, the minister is not an engineer. We told him not to do it. And he's an idiot. And he went ahead and did it anyway. (laughs) And it worked and it worked. We had this idea, you know, um, there are certain gravel roads in the country that were unpaved. And because of that, during the rainy season, sections of the road would become cut off. And so the idea to them was, oh, let's pave the sections of the road that get cut off every, we're talking about 200 yards or less. Just pave that. And then the rest of the road would be, they were like, no, that's a terrible idea. Again. And then uh, <laughs> there was a really steep hill that was unpaved and USAID provided money to be able to pave the side of the hill that was unpaved. That was really, really bad. And I was like, that's exactly what we saw. I think there was a lot of room for people to be creative, but the creativity can only go so far if the infrastructure needs are so big. Yeah. I'd like to return to roads in the future because that's sort of one of your hobby horses. But Responding to the last question, you brought up right, private provision of infrastructure. And one of the ways, for example, the U.S. did it with railroads was giving these land grants where the railroads actually tended to lose money. But what happens is you build a railroad, and you own all the land around the railroad. 
and you build the railroad and then even after factoring in the cost of shipping, you're losing money, but you own the land, land rises in value because now you have access to this transportation hub. And this is a similar model that's used in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Metro. I don't know exactly what the, the structure is, but they get some of the upside. So if they open a new metro station, then the increase, there's a new metro station, all the land nearby rises in value and the Hong Kong Metro gains some of that rise in value, which is kind of the theory of of charter cities by allowing the private sector to take some of the benefit from some of the increases in economic activity, then they're going to be much more incentivized to provide some of this infrastructure. One, I guess, more question about your time as minister. One of the challenges in working in emerging markets is that there is a lot of corruption. So how did you deal with that? I didn't realize how different Liberia was from other places until toward the end, but also just talking about how we did things. The first budget of the entire country was $80 million, as in eight zero for an entire country. (laughs) (laughs) And so because of how little resources the government had, the government had to depend on external donors for assistance, bilateral, U.S., EU, multilateral, World Bank, African Development Bank. And because of that, most of the rules on how the government conducted itself were written by them. And so basically what happened is that for the level of development in Liberia, the system we had was way too advanced for, in fact, and we complained about that all the time because it slowed things down. It was really, really cumbersome, but basically that's what happened. So for example, on most of the corruption occurs around procurement. It was really, really kind of hard. Because you have people who are judging the procurement rules who don't have a lot of education when it's well i mean no huge amounts the, of paperwork. the thing about the corruption around procurement is just like there's a lot of collusion between the people procuring and the vendors with programs that are financed by african development bank world bank or european investment bank the procurement rules were their rules and every step of the process required a no objection from them which meant every step of the process had to follow the way to be able to do that so it wasn't i don't think it was because of the lack of effort to steal or it was, <laughs> I don't think it was also because of the lack of there's something just, you know, moral about people. I mean, there were still cases of corruption, high cases of corruption, but I think because of the insistence on process, and this is one of the best ways to fight corruption is actually reducing discretion. And that's why you have systems. And I'll give you an example with the passports, getting passports in Liberia. It used to be crazy. You went in there and People, you had to give people extra money to be able to do this. It was crazy. And they didn't even know whether you got your passport. And then this lady came from diaspora who returned to Liberia and said, listen, this is really, really crazy. After today, we're no longer collecting cash here. You go and pay for your passport at a bank and just bring the receipt from the bank and we'll process it. And in five working days, you get your passport. And just like that. And then, in fact, the bank that we decided to use sent a teller to the passport office. The teller is not connected with the passport office. It's just the bank and that's it. And so then they restructured it. So people who were paying for passports, who were getting passports were in a completely different place. People who had come to just pick up their passport were in a completely different place. All of that crazy outdoor market stuff that used to be was gone. And this is what happens when you bring in institutions. So I think there's still a lot of corruption just simply because the systems aren't as strong as they should be. But in places where significant amounts of money was being spent, there were stronger systems there, and that helped. Cool. And I said that was the last question I'd ask you about your time as minister, but I lied. There's one more question. You told an interesting story a while back about, I guess one of the challenges is changing culture. 
And so you're coming from a not immediate sort of post-war era, but like semi-post-war era. So how do you affect this culture change both in the ministry and, and more broadly to get people to have this sort of longer term mindset to embrace rules that would benefit them over the longer run? But how do you do that? So I like to tell the story about parking in Monrovia. It used to be crazy. You parked wherever you could and, and it was nothing orderly about it. And then one year, um, the city decided that they were going to pay a private sector partner to be able to enforce parking and people would get tickets when you parked. You can park there for like an hour and so. And initially when it was announced, everybody was like, nah, man, nobody follows rules. Yeah, that's stupid. It's not going to happen. Now, if you were to Monrovia, it works. Same thing. On Mondays and Wednesdays at the ministry, we had our meetings, administrative and technical meetings to go over all of the projects that the country was going through, infrastructure projects in the country where we have project managers come and give an update, and then administrative meetings about procurement issues. And the meeting started at 8 a.m. Now, you've heard a story that in Africa, black people time, like people don't show up on time for anything. When we were in Zambia, we almost missed a flight because they take so long getting us the bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that didn't happen when we were at the ministry. We came in at 810. The door was locked where the meeting was happening. That door was locked. And when that door was locked and then attendance was taken. Now, salaries were split between your regular salary and sort of like a performance allowance. And the performance allowance was in U.S. dollars. That's what we cut. <laughs> and and once, the, once we locked the door the first time, I mean, you came in at 7.45 and the room was full, <laughs> right? And so I think it's just stick-to-itiveness on the part of the people enforcing the rules and then attaching costs and benefits to people's adherence of the rules. Now, obviously, after we left, I mean, the consistency of anything like this, it requires the leadership to continue to harp on this. And so I think in a lot of places, we saw the emergence of a professional culture as long as it was enforced to a certain level. Yeah, I think that's important because that is one of the challenges. I mean, one of the questions that sometimes comes up regarding charter cities is culture. And there's a famous economics paper that looks at diplomats at the UN in New York. And basically the Swedes, for example, never get parking tickets. And when they get parking tickets, they pay them. Um, the Nigerians frequently get parking tickets, but would never pay them because they weren't legally required. And then the law changed, so they were then required to pay them. And suddenly the Nigerians stopped getting a lot of parking tickets. And so I think there tends to be sometimes a little bit of, I guess, like cultural pessimism that, okay, their culture isn't great, but therefore they're sort of like nothing can be improved. But in reality, if you sort of have effective leadership, like you mentioned, and if you are able to set up the proper incentive structure, then people change relatively quickly. I would just give an example. I mean, we had a, the Minister of Post and Telecoms during a cabinet meeting complained of getting his tires booted. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Minister of State, this is the President's Chief of Staff. His vehicle was double parked. He wasn't in it. It was his driver. But you can see the plates and know that it's cabinet minister because they're different. The color is different and the number is different. And the guy was coming with the boot. <laughs> and the president's chief of staff driver fled. <laughs> so I think I think this whole question is an African country, is a country where I think once the rules are enforced without people bypassing the rules or people like, oh, do you know who I am kind of thing, eventually everybody falls in line. And so once that happened, you knew when you arrive, this is exactly what you were supposed to do and to avoid. And so initially, people would park and they wouldn't do anything because they felt like nothing would happen. And but after then, you get a ticket then? No, no ticket. You booted. You got booted. Right? <laughs> and the guy just stands there. You're not going to leave until you pay. 
And then to avoid all of that, because you have to go to a meeting, you have stuff to do, people stop doing that. And so once people knew that there were consequences to their actions, people fell in line. Yeah, I mean, you see that even now with the whole COVID thing. Over the last three weeks, there's been a massive change in behavior in terms of people going out, in terms of how close people will get to each other. So one of your, I guess, you've described roads as the most fundamental technology. Why? Romans had roads. Everybody has roads. Why are there's they the a, most? Yeah, there is an argument. I mean, some of my friends who focus on energy say it's energy, I think it's roads. And so I go back to say that most people, when they think of roads, especially in the West, they have had a functioning road system for close to 60, 70 years that it's become, it's faded into the background that no one even notices it. They only talk about it if there's a big pothole or if I-75 between Lexington and Cincinnati Ever since I arrived in this country, they've been repairing that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And roads are, paving roads is a technology. It allows the movement of people from one area to do it smoothly and to do it swiftly. And it is probably the most, one of the most basic and fundamental pieces of technology that we have. Because what it did, once we began to settle in cities, it allowed us to be able to have connection between settlements, but it also gave lords, kings, it gave them some sort of administrative cohesion over the area that they controlled. And those things, those uh, functions still apply today. But I always like to use an example with the most successful, the wealthiest country in the world, which is the United States, that 75, 76% of all freight in the United States is still carried on roads. One we think is actually trains, that no, it's roads. So you can imagine, I like to give also the example that the interstate system in the U.S. is only 2.5% of the lane miles across the U.S. paved, but it carries over 25% of vehicular traffic. Without the interstate system, I'm not saying that interstate commerce would collapse, but it would slow significantly. Across the EU, the average is around 75% in terms of freight that is transported on roads. For some countries like the UK, it's uh, 90%. So if you were to imagine then an African country where only 49% of the roads not paved are passable, because in Liberia, it's like 10% or less. Across the continent, is 43% of the roads that are paved. So if the US, if China, if EU require massive functioning road systems to be able for their economies to function as they do. You can imagine then, how does Africa develop a modern economy without, I always refer to it, an infrastructure spine. It is the spine that allows you, like everything else you carry on your body, the, the blood, the veins, the flesh, everything is on the spine. And so without that infrastructure spine, it's almost impossible to imagine how one builds a functioning modern economy. So I'd like to challenge roads as the most fundamental technology. Listen, I'm, I'm an economist. It wouldn't be the first time. Why not governance? <laughs> governance is really, really important because, I mean, right now, who wants to build roads in Chad or in Guinea-Bissau? So I think governance is, is really, really important. The reason I like to focus on roads is that one has to take into account Take for granted, I guess, that if there isn't a functioning government in place, why are we even talking about an economy? A modern economy requires some sort of um, governance system to be in place. But in Liberia, and I get like to use this as an example, we did an economic diagnostic of our country through the MCC. It's called, it's a growth diagnostic, it's a tool. 
and it was called a constraints analysis. It tries to answer the question, what is the binding constraint to economic growth in the country? And it interrogates everything you can think of. Is it corruption? Is it the quality of governance? Is it red tape? Is it incompetence? Is it um, lack of infrastructure? What infrastructure? You go through these steps. And when we did the constraints analysis for Liberia, it came up with two things. It was the lack of a functioning road system and power. Those were the two binding constraints to economic growth. It doesn't mean that weak governance isn't an issue. It doesn't mean that corruption isn't an issue, but the binding constraint to economic growth was that. And so what MCC does then is it gives the country a big grant to remove one of those constraints. And so that's why I feel like roads and then a close second is energy power. But the reason I think roads are important is because even for energy, even if you're building modular, meaning grid systems, you have to get the material somewhere. How do you get them there? On your head, walking on a bicycle. You need some sort of path. You need some sort of road to be able to do it. And that's why I think it's even more fundamental. And the final thing I would say is the Chinese were very kind to us, built a $10 million referral hospital in the middle of the country. But six months out of the year, it was inaccessible because during the rainy season, there was no roads to be able to get there. So you have an excellent hospital that can't treat people because there's no roads to be able to get there. So during the Ebola crisis, I always said that it began as a health crisis and spiraled into an infrastructure crisis because it was taking us just getting specimen, blood specimen from suspected patients to get tested. The specimen would become invalid because of how long it took because it occurred in the peak of the rainy season. So I, I think infrastructure is really, really important. And we're getting to a place where it's almost as if the lag and the gap it's insurmountable because of how far back it is. And until we can find a way to be able to mobilize new forms of financing or new ways of being able to finance this, we might not be able to overcome that gap. Yeah. You've talked about prizes to incentivize better roads. What would that look like? So this is what animates me, right? There has been significant improvement and advances in materials science. And so artificial intelligence and machine learning has allowed us to run simulations. So in the past, new materials were created by testing and testing, running different iterations of the same thing. Now you can actually get machines to run those simulations without you actually having to do it. So the first thing is when we crowdsource answers, we get some of the smartest people in the world who currently are not thinking about these problems to give them an incentive to focus on those problems. And eventually, boop, we find an answer. So a lot of governments, a lot of government agencies have run price challenges. And so my idea is human beings first used tar, asphalt, around 600 BC, the Babylonians did. Since then, we haven't changed, right? We've used the same material to pave our roads. And in the places where the technology exists for people to discover new material, paving roads is no longer an issue. So there's no reason to expend intellectual power on something like that. In the places where roads remain an issue, like in Africa, you don't have the research capabilities to be able to do that. So the idea of the prize challenge is to put up a prize and invite materials engineers, especially road pavement engineers from around the world, to compete on creating a new material that is orders of magnitude cheaper than what we have without compromising the quality and at worst environmentally neutral. And so I 
been trying to sell this idea. Everybody listens and they're like, yeah, that's a really good idea. But no. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to, I guess, stay on road so it's just a tad bit longer. Because if you look at, for example, African per capita GDP, a lot of it isn't that bad, at least compared to, for example, East Asia. Even, then if you go back, the sort of classic example is 1960, Ghana was richer than South Korea. And even go back further, Rome has roads that are still even sometimes being used today. And if you look at their per capita income, it was low. And so you've got countries like Angola, where per capita incomes, I think it's like $2,500 a year, right? It's not high, but it is high enough that they presumably have the resources to build roads. So then what is the binding constraint there? Is it political will? Is it corruption? Is it something else? It's a combination of all those things. I think first, um, so in terms of GDP numbers and per capita income numbers, the Afrobarometer has decided to stop measuring well-being just using pure GDP numbers. And what they do then is to measure how many meals a family misses or how many times a family misses the meal. And so on pure per capita and GDP numbers, Gabon is one of the best in Africa in terms of its economy. But when they did the survey in terms of how many meals a family missed, Gabon is one of the worst. In fact, countries with lower GDP do better than Gabon. So part of this is that these, especially because a lot of economies depend on commodities, there's significant fluctuation in the government. And because of that, there hasn't, I think that when governments can depend on rents from natural resources, there's really no incentive to develop other parts of the economy. There's really no incentive to... There's even a risk to developing other parts because they challenge your power monopoly. Exactly. And then there's really no there's really no incentive to develop that kind of relationship with a private sector that you're going to be taxing because most of your taxes come from... Resource from, extraction. From rent, right? And so, and what happens then is that dependence on rent corrupts the entire system so much that the around procurement of even the most basic services. I mean, one of the things the IMF, I think is the IMF did a, a study in Kenya that showed that over 500 projects were just unfinished. It would cost the Kenyan government about $50 billion. If you were to do such a similar review in countries that depend on natural resource rents, you'll probably find it's all across the country. There are a bunch of projects that were started that just never finished. So the number of reasons for that, one is, Money's budgeted for these projects end up getting siphoned off by people who use the money for things other than what the projects were for. And because there are no mechanisms for accountability, they end up getting away with it. That's one. Number two, we see very limited continuity between governments. So once a government changes power and a new government comes to power, most times they start new things. They start completely different things because they try to differentiate themselves from the people who came before. So you have unfinished projects that are there. And then finally, I think... Over time, this sounds terrible. I think people campaigning elections always say, oh, I'm going to build your infrastructure. I'm going to build your infrastructure. And they may not finish it on time. There's some sort of like a perverse incentive not to finish it and so that you can promise it next time or somebody else coming after you can be able to promise it. So I think the quality of governance is going to be really, really important here. And the final thing I would say also is that in a lot of places they did have infrastructure, but maintenance became an issue. You have a bunch of big projects, big buildings, steam mills that were built, never used properly, and they're just massive hulks of previous infrastructure projects that just never finished. You have roads that were built 10, 20 years ago with little or no maintenance at all that just simply crumbled. And so I think it's a combination of all of these things. And hopefully, I keep thinking, I don't know if it's going to work, that if the global economy decarbonizes, 
and all of a sudden hey we're doing it now we're doing it now no no like, <laughs> i mean permanently decarbonized and and then we had all of these stranded assets especially for oil that governments that are so dependent on that will be forced now to develop other portions of the economy maybe we'll see the kind of development that we're looking for yeah and so when talking about roads you've been i guess focusing on the importance of them to create basically trading networks so with that framework how do we judge belt and road I think this is why it's been really difficult for the U.S. to convince countries not to accept Chinese investment or not to, because I think it was a study from Cary, China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University that showed that about 56% of Chinese lending in Africa had gone to direct infrastructure. Or around the same time, about 21 African countries have gone to international markets and issued euro bonds, and they crossed the 100 billion threshold in terms of bonds. And almost all of that money has gone to finance fiscal balances, right? It's gone to either repay existing debt or to just pay for government budget consumption. None of it is going into capital expense. So if you had to choose then between the Chinese financing and just financing consumption, what would you do? Because of the Chinese financing, you have a rail between Mombasa and Nairobi. Obviously, we need to know the terms of that rail, but it exists. I mean, it's not as profitable as it should be or as it was projected to be, but it exists. I mean, that doesn't matter for the Kenyans, it matters <laughs> exactly. for the Chinese. <laughs> exactly, right? And so if you, you owe the bank $1,000, you have a problem. If you owe the bank a million, $100 million, the, the bank, bank has, has a problem. Exactly. <laughs> well, the second thing also is that you have roads. I mean, thousands of kilometers of roads in places where roads wouldn't be. You have water filtration plants providing clean water to places where it wasn't. And so I think the Belt and Road Initiative, because it targets such a huge gap in infrastructure. I mean, we have gigawatts of power plants that are built now providing electricity that would not exist if it didn't happen. And so I think because it targets something that is so fundamental to the growth of an economy, I think on that level, it's been a success. I think the opaque, non-transparent terms remain an issue. But i just like to give this example. Between 2001 and 2018, and all the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, the U.S. has spent about $6 trillion. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so my thing is, if, if just one-sixth of that, if the U.S. had its own Belt and Road Initiative where it was financing infrastructure across the world for just one-sixth of what it spent in but the 18 years. look at what we've got in Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so They're I modern, think, vibrant democracies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think there's just something, something really, really perverse that such a great country with such significant resources. And so I think it's JP Morgan that projects about 2027, if the Belt and Road Initiative continues to spend as it is, by 2027, it would have spent $1 trillion. So it would take it from 2013 to 2027 to spend one-sixth of what the U.S. has spent on wars. Come on, man. Priorities. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I I criticize the, the Belt and Road Initiative just because sometimes, because we don't know the terms of those, and especially because they're, they're debt. And most likely, the government repaying the debt is not going to be the government that signed it. The debt is still on the people. I think it's important for those loans to be. I think the second thing quickly on the Belt and Road Initiative is that all of those contracts have to go to a Chinese company. And rarely are there any subcontractors to even locals. So there's no way for them to develop expertise to be able to do it and no way for some of the money to be able to stay in country. I think we need to see changes in that. Yeah, I think that's right and sort of interesting. If you look at how China developed, like one of the things they did was, for example, when they did their high-speed rails, I believe that they took bids from four companies, I think it was three European and one Japanese, and they said 40% of the engineers have to be Chinese. 
for the first few years, they have a bunch of Chinese engineers and they're all terrible, but they build the skills such that they actually develop the expertise to be able to do that. And China is able to do that because their market is so massive and Africa has a massive market, but Africa is not a country. So the individual countries tend not to have that negotiating power. That is correct. And then I think one of the other interesting things, I'm actually a little bit less sort of concerned about the terms of the deal in the individual deals with Belt and Road, just because China has no power to enforce them. So even if the deals are quite onerous, I mean, you're basically seeing, I think this is in Sri Lanka, where they have the Chinese government try to take a 99-year lease on the port because the Sri Lankan government wasn't making the payments. And the Sri Lankan government is like, no, just kidding. What's China going to do? Like send gunboats? Maybe well, in 10 I mean, years I mean, they so do, that's but now the they thing. can't. I mean, even in the Sri Lanka case, it wasn't even like they, I think the company regrets that today in accepting that deal in Sri Lanka. And I've always said this, what's going to happen? What is the worst case scenario? Are we going to see Chinese expeditionary forces arriving into the country to be able to take over? No, that's not going to happen. And what's happening now? One of the things that- Chinese the, are taking haircuts. Well, one of the things that's happening with the coronavirus is that we have a bunch of African countries that have Eurobond payments that are due beginning 2022. And this thing is damaging their economies and the ability to be able to repay that loan. How does one resolve it if they're forced to default? However, if that loan was owed to China, you could sit at the table and renegotiate the terms of the loan. So I think this focus on Chinese debt, this has brought it into focus that is actually non-traditional lenders to Africa, especially the private sector, that carry the most risk for African debt than does Chinese debt. Again, it doesn't mean that Chinese debt and the terms are perfect. We definitely need to be able to see how these are done, right? But I'm not as worried about it as people, especially because it's providing. Here's the thing. There is no like-for-like replacement for China's role in financing infrastructure in low- and middle-income countries. If China were to withdraw today, there is no like-for-like replacement. The U.S. is not going to fill that space. Germany isn't going to fill that space. And so I think this thing where... But most of the people making these decisions in these countries have done exactly what they should do. They've ignored everybody else and continued to deal with China. And now what we're seeing with the coronavirus is China has basically replaced the West in terms of helping countries to respond to this. So it's going to be really, really difficult to imagine. I mean, I think China itself, because of emerging problems at home, will have to spend more money at home and there will be less Chinese money available to be able to do the things they've been doing over the last two decades. I think that's right. And one of the interesting ways I like to sort of think about Belt and Road is it's basically taking the Chinese growth model, right? People think it's a centrally planned thing, but it's actually not. China was having a lot of these major infrastructure investments before they even developed the term Belt and Road. They just basically came up with this branding for this thing that was already being done. But the way the Chinese political system works is basically you, if you're like a province leader, you get promotions by hitting specific GDP targets. And that was done internally a while through this massive infrastructure production because credit rates were were extremely low. And that infrastructure investment tended to pay off because Chinese growth was so high. But now they basically exported that production model to other countries um, in Africa and Asia, some in Latin America, even in Europe. But the thing is, the growth rates are very different there. So they tend to be very heavily overly investing. And and then then it was just difficult to scale. Yeah. But I think we have an opportunity now in Africa with this in July, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement is going to go into effect. And what it does, it creates a single market. And hopefully if we can make that work, then we can scale. I mean, in ways that... And so one of the things that I've been suggesting about Chinese financing of infrastructure is actually to do regional projects. Instead of doing a single project in the country, one of the biggest things that we can do on the continent, and this is, again, important for charter cities, is that for us to begin to look at Africa, not so much as a bunch of countries, but as a bunch of cities, right? Think about connecting Accra to Lagos. 
think about connecting. And if we just first focus on connecting all of the African capitals that are near each other by some sort of link, then we can also focus on cities of 500,000 or above, connect those. And the less we think, and so I think the new forms of development, we have to look at sub-national development and looking at cities and the role that they play in, in development. That's why, again, I keep coming back to this about the attractiveness of the charter city model, because today you're asking people to maintain social distancing. How do you do that in Kibera? Like, how do you do that in a slum? I mean, where basically you walk through someone else's bedroom to go to your bedroom. Like, how do you maintain social, social distance there? There's a huge gap in terms of the housing stock, in terms of the infrastructure stock. And governments just don't have the capacity to be able to do that. And everywhere else in the world, outside of Africa, they are at or below replacement levels in terms of population. Population is going to continue to grow. So how do you build the infrastructure stock that's needed? How do you give the private sector some sort of incentive for them to be able to put money at risk? And I think this idea of an innovative way to do governance gives us an opportunity that hasn't been done before. And we're just looking now. I think Rwanda has been very, very aggressive in terms of being innovative, in terms of the way they do things. And the hope is that a number of countries, and that's why I'm happy that the Charter Cities had this MOU with the Zambian government, and we can begin to see something happen there. Because all we need is a single success. And with that, we can be able to solve a significant amount of problems. When you look at the growth in global value chains, it's connection between cities. And Africa's disengagement, disconnection with global value chains is because of how unconnected African cities are. And so whether it's developing regional value chains or connecting those regional value chains to global value chains, the importance of cities cannot be underestimated. I think that's right. And I mean, you brought up COVID and how low-income countries can react, especially with sort of very tightly, densely packed slums. One of the interesting examples from, I think it's actually Liberia during Ebola, was a Firestone plantation that had 80,000 people that effectively managed to avoid any Ebola deaths. Why? They didn't have any special training in infectious diseases. They just Googled it, like, okay, what do we do? And a handful of cases, and they quarantined those cases, and they made sure the doctors and nurses had a lot of protective equipment. And it wasn't a matter of, you don't need to be a genius, you don't need to be have a PhD and in epidemiology, you just need to be able to read three Google articles and then make sure that those standards are enforced extremely effectively. And so it is it is a challenge of capacity. And there was a video going around recently in Rwanda where they have basically set up hand-washing booths. So before you go on a bus, you have to wash your hands. It's quite possible even at lower levels of income. I mean, in Rwanda, their per capita income is under $1,000 a day. And you can set up, you can have this capacity. It's just that a lot of governments, unfortunately, don't. I mean, even like the U.S. is obviously struggling with this pretty severely right now. I mean, definitely. I think just having, we during the Ebola crisis, there were times when the teams, the ambulance would get a call that there was a person who was sick and showing the symptoms. The ambulance would come to pick the person up, but the person lives in a slum. There's no way for an ambulance to be able to get there. There are people who died simply because of the basic infrastructure was missing. And so I think how we build cities going forward, and it's not just in terms of building on the stock of the infrastructure and housing that's needed in cities. Or one of the things my colleague, two of my colleagues at the Center for Global Development and two co-authors wrote a book. They wrote a paper recently that noticed that the cost of industrial labor in Africa tends to be slightly more expensive than elsewhere. And the reason is simply because cost of living tended to be really high. 
So in Ethiopia, what they've been doing is the government has been building government housing. The government has been investing in reducing the cost of food with the intention of being able to, for Ethiopia to match Bangladesh in the cost of an industrial labor for a year. In Bangladesh, it's around $800,000 a year. In Ethiopia, it's $900. Other African cities like Senegal, like Nairobi, like Dakar, like Accra, they're about $1,400, $1,500. And so because of that, we're basically priced out of that low-level manufacturing that would create the number of jobs that are needed. And so I think it's hard to overemphasize the need for planned cities, not unplanned settlements. When I was Minister of Public Works in 2016, I got hit by a car and fractured my hip, right? So now I can't run, I can't jump, I can't do anything. And why was that? Because I ran all my life. When I was in college, I actually started running when I was in college because the college owned a forest. And so where the cross-country team used to practice, I would run and then just became a thing. Even when I went to Georgetown, I was running Rock Creek Park. Went home, there are no parks because the city isn't structured like that. So I run in the street and got hit by a car. And just having open spaces, having spaces, but most of our cities aren't designed to be able to accommodate life in that way. And so I think going forward, how we see cities, how governments see cities and how governments can, how cities are structured and built will be really, really important, a really, really defining issue of African economic growth and economic capacity going forward. And I mean, the numbers are just staggering. Africa is supposed to add about 950 million new urban residents by 2050. The current population of Africa is about 1.1 billion, and it's under 50% urbanized. So the African urban population is literally tripling over the next 30 years. And being able to ensure that those people have opportunities, that the cities are well-planned, well-designed, is crucial because otherwise people are trapped in slums for generations. When I went over to your house, you had a book, How Asia Works. Yeah, and you mentioned it. And it's kind of interesting because it's been making the rounds on some like, I don't know, sort of former libertarian circles in terms of industrial policy. So how does Asia work and, and what can Africa learn from that? Some of the exact same things that they tried to do in Asia with industrial policy and special economic zones, those were tried in Africa. They never worked. And it seemed that the difference was in Asia, a level of export discipline was imposed on those who benefited from industrial policy, that if you couldn't compete internationally, you were left to die. And back home, they focused on import substitution. And so basically, they shielded those companies from any sort of competition. And basically, the local market was a captive market. And so there was no need to adopt foreign technology. There was no need to be able to improve because there was no export discipline. And because of that, it failed. So I think if you look at Ethiopia now, their industrial policy is significantly outward-facing. It's about export. And I think if Ethiopia succeeds and countries can begin to look at Ethiopia and, and focus, I think that's the main difference. The second thing also was that in our iteration of industrial policy, the government tried to pick winners. And picking winners meant people who were connected to the government sort of just simply received a significant amount of subsidy, cheap foreign exchange. And because there was no export discipline, they had no incentive to actually improve the quality of what they were doing. And so it just ended up being corrupt. Whereas in South Korea, for example, certain companies were allowed to fail or be taken over by their rivals if they didn't meet. And and by allowing 
by accepting that companies will fail, by accepting that companies will be allowed to fail, it imposed a certain amount of discipline that allowed them to be able to do it. And so I think this is a lot of lessons to learn from there. And if we can apply those lessons, I think we would. I think because of the continental free trade agreement, we have an opportunity to do regional input substitution. I don't have to build everything in Liberia if I can bring it in from South Africa. So right now, intra-Africa trade is around 16%. It's the lowest in the world for any region. And part of that is just because, first, there are very few connections in terms of infrastructure, but also because the economies are way less diverse. If I'm producing Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, the two largest producers of cocoa, what are they going to exchange? Cocoa? I mean, so I think if we can discipline, even if the discipline, if the export discipline is meant for regional markets, you see the quality improve. One of the things you would notice back home and I don't know if it applies everywhere. I'm just speaking from the experience that I've seen in West Africa. You can always tell the difference of what, say, toilet paper that was produced outside the region, those that were produced in the region, just in terms of the quality. However, if you bought it in South Africa, it was equal to or better than what you got in Europe. And so I think the South Africans, maybe because of apartheid, maybe because of how separated they were, they were forced to apply some sort of export discipline and that allowed the industry to develop in ways that it just didn't work out on the continent. So I really like that book. In fact, every three months or so, I just go back and get it and get it. I think my understanding is writing another book. I think he's writing it on Africa. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to yeah, it. No, that'll be a good book. You talked a little bit about the African free, Continental Free Trade Agreement. How optimistic are you for it? They ratified it last summer and then six months later, Nigeria closes their border with Benin. So first of all, I think across the continent, there is, a, there is a realization of how dire things are. And so this was the fastest in terms of getting the ratification. It was the fastest ever. It's going to be the largest in terms of both the population size and the number of countries in it in the world. I'm cautiously optimistic, and we have to put the emphasis on cautious. Simply because on paper, we're probably the most integrated region in the world. We have ECOWAS. In West Africa, we have the East African community. We have SADC. We have eight RECs, regional economic communities. And if those were functioning, we probably wouldn't need it. <laughs> so simply because you've taken it from 15 countries and I included 54 countries, doesn't necessarily mean that things change. So on paper, we do really, really well. And so that's why it remains to be seen. But the speed at which it was done, it seems there's a lot of commitment here on the part of the leaders now to make sure this works. And obviously... I think I'm not really too worried about Nigeria closing this border. I think there's going to be um, growing pains for something like this. I believe if the commitment remains as it is, it's going to work out. So I'm hopeful for it because it's almost impossible for Africa to assert itself globally if we're balkanized, fragmented, meaning city-states in terms of the size of the economy. And I think is as an entire market then you have a greater say in terms of being able to, even though the U.S. is working really hard to undermine before it even starts. The U.S. is working on a bilateral agreement with Kenya here at the moment when the rest of the continent is saying, we want to be able to do a single. So thanks to the U.S. Yeah. So the story of how we met, I think, is kind of interesting because I forget exactly why, but I saw you on Twitter and I tweeted something like, do you like charter cities? And we're one of the few people in D.C. who actually responded like, yes, I do. And then we sort of got lunch and hit it off. So I guess to start, let me just ask, 
sort of brought this up a, a few times on the podcast already, but just what is the core issue of charter cities that appeals so much to you? And why do you think it could help Africa as well as the rest of the world? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think having been responsible for infrastructure in a low-income country, post-conflict, fragile state, and seeing the numbers, and then having traveled, you go to Addis, you go to Kampala, you go to Nairobi, you go to Accra, and everywhere in the city, you just see the teeming numbers of young people. You don't even have to be sort of demographer to be able to see what's happening. And then having been in the highest level of an African government, one that was trying, struggling with all of these things, whether it's in the office of the president or on the cabinet, to be able to see difficulty in terms of being able to finance it. I always knew that we had to find a way, a different way to be able to do this. And when I first heard about charter cities, I thought it made sense. I just didn't get the whole Canada colonizing a piece of <laughs> <laughs> Canada colonizing a piece of I, I just it's just really the same like tone death. But I always knew that and then so the way you framed it just made so much sense. It just seemed like this is one of the ways to go. There's not going to be like a silver bullet to solve this problem. But in terms of the arsenal, all the suite of tools we have, this is an important component. Thanks for that. Paul Romer's idea was you have a high-income country act as a guarantor like Canada in a low-income country. And the argument there is that the high-income country has good rules, plus not just the good rules, but it acts effectively as a makes it such that it's really hard for the host country to change its mind. And so one of the risks is that, at least in our approach, we get this mostly by economists ask this question like, okay, why, if you're successful, won't the host country just come and expropriate the charter city and and sort of kill the goose that lays the golden eggs? And so what are your thoughts on that? This is a risk that's always going to be there because states are sovereign. Barrick Gold in Tanzania, saw the Tanzanian government come and try to take over, take over. I mean, we've seen in instances where after significant capital expenditure in infrastructure, especially in extractives, governments try to nationalize. But we're seeing less and less of that. Governments are becoming more and more rule-based. And so I think it's going to be difficult for people to get rid of that risk. But the ways that are in the mean way that private companies have been able to get around that is that almost all of our agreements now, especially for natural resource extraction, have arbitration clauses. And the choice of arbitration is usually in an external capital. And so I can't imagine why we can't build some of the same kinds of protections into something like this. I mean, there are people building special economic zones, and we've always talked about charter cities as SEZs too. So I think we have to remember that when you build a charter city, it is still a, a business, and that risk will have to be priced in in some way, and there will be a premium for that risk. And the better we can mitigate the risk, the lower the premium is going to be. So I think it's possible to be able to structure this based on the current experience we have in a way so that it works. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's one of the things we recently hired an attorney and we're basically looking into some of the sort of concessions that are typically based on resource extraction as frameworks for understanding how to create the legal justification for charter cities, as well as the risk mitigation strategies. Then one final question. We briefly talked about this earlier in reference to China and Belt and Road, but how can charter cities effectively make sure that there is sort of skill sharing amongst the local people and to make sure that they're not just end up being like enclaves really leading to this like broad-based prosperity that I think the world needs? We talked about this, I don't know if it was on the podcast or during our break, that the importance of cities, especially to economies. That's why most of the U.S. economy is from cities, especially along the coasts. 
So what's been happening since I've been here and I've been talking about Africa's response to external actors, especially China, one of the things that comes up again and again, and sometimes in fairly sophisticated circles, is that, well, the Chinese are bringing all of their laborers. The Chinese, they're not hiring Africans. I mean, that was true about a decade ago, not anymore. Because the cost of labor in China has actually gone up. So it's more expensive now to bring Chinese people to do it. And so it's actually in the interest of Chinese companies on the continent to hire and work with people there. Second thing also is that there has been a bit of the Chinese economy is, is growing more and more into a service economy. And some of that low-level manufacturing has been moving, but it's been moving closer to China and to Vietnam and, and Laos and, and, and Cambodia. And I think that's where Ethiopia is trying to get into that. And so I believe that if we, if charter cities develop, it will be in the interest of actually BRI and, and Chinese companies following the BRI to actually then invest in those cities. And the kind of investment that we're looking for are investments that bring mass employment and manufacturing, especially like low level, like garment industry. Those are the kinds of things that you're looking for first. And so I think charter cities will become the catalyst. They will become places where rules are clear and clearly defined. There will be places where infrastructure is provided for and places where there's a certain amount of predictability to the regulatory environment and predictability that may not exist outside the city, but they can be able, they can be found there. And so now that you've built all of these infrastructure and connected places that were not connected before, it becomes something that is leveraged to be able to build the next level over that. And so I think charter cities are an important piece, can play a very important role in terms of what comes next. Well, that's a great ending. So thanks for coming on the show, Judah. Listen, it's my pleasure and good luck with everything. Man. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. Thank you.